Welcome back to Dairy Public Radio. Reporting from the basement of the Dairy Civic Center, this is Sam Alexander with the news. Or at least it looks like it should be the news. Listeners, the news is wrong. As I hold the pages, a chill rips through my body. The texture of the paper is so smooth to the touch, I expect the words to slide off the page as I lift them. But those aren't words either. Letters of some kind. The shapes are familiar, like teeth. I expect my hands to bleed if I touch them. So I won't. Not yet. But soon, this is not news. You're listening to Dairy Public Radio. This is Dairy Public Radio. Welcome back to Dairy Public Radio, a bi-weekly Stephen King book club podcast. I am one of your hosts, C.M. Alexander. Oh, Josh is looking at me so weird. <laughs> a very weird energy that is... Oh, alongside the creepy Joshua Khan. Hey, everybody. Why is this? That she called me creepy. Starting. That's creepy Josh. And the kind and safe Benjamin Graham. Hey, Constantators. <laughs> and today, we are covering from a Buick 8. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do it right. Yeah. A Patreon selection by Elizabeth Trudeau. We are reading until now Archie. No, so close. Oh, Shit. so close. I don't I don't know how she messed it up. Then Archie. Then oh, We yeah, yeah. are reading until <laughs> we are reading through until then Archie. <laughs> right? Nailed it. And Josh is leading our discussion. Wait, is that right? I thought the last thing that happened was then. So we should be going into a now? <laughs> I th- no. The last thing is a now because of the cliffhanger it leaves us on. And then, oh, because that was happening in the present. Yes. And they're like, oh, yeah, and he was now, the first one to. S- now we're hearing the. So when we pick up next episode, it'll be, it'll be Archie Arcanian's first chapter. Okay. All I want to say is that if you are listening to this, the words now and then do not stand out as chapter breaks because <laughs> those are common words that are used frequently in any sentence. No, th- this is definitely, it would have been clear if they would have just done a Dolores Claiborne. Yeah. And mm-hmm. just like not had, not even pretended to have chapter breaks. <laughs> I just, I, I don't know how, I posted this on social media, but I had the audiobook. It's so strange the way the breakdown of chapters are. It's nonsense. Nothing. (laughs) It doesn't tie to anything. Well, we do know where we're starting, and it's with chapter one. I don't (laughs) know what it's called, though. Now, Sandy. Shit. (laughs) This actually, it was it was easier for me because I listened. I usually listen to the audiobook and hold the book. Mm-hmm. Like I follow along uh, I've done for, that, so, like yeah. I, th- for some reason that makes it stick in my brain better. So that's what I've been doing. So it, it wasn't confusing for me, but I imagine just listening to it. It was nonsense. Our listeners don't know this because I cut it, but I fell apart trying to do the <laughs> outro for <laughs> the missed part three as Josh was explaining to me how to describe where we we're stopping. Anyway, <laughs> let's dive into it. Let's jump into uh, the present where we are with Ned Wilcox, the son of Kurt Wilcox, who's been spending his senior year hanging out with Troop D, the the place where his dad was a, a state trooper. His father, Kurt, was recently 
killed in a in a car accident, killed in a traffic stop car accident where he pulled over a semi, paused too long to look at a mud flap and a drunk driver who was reaching down to grab a beer out of a cooler, took his eyes off the road and swerved over and crushed him between the car and the semi. Mm. Sound familiar? Yeah. Like, any time I read anything in King about a drunk driver hurting someone else, I think of King's real accident. <laughs> oh, specifically, the taking his eyes off the road to reach grab in a cooler a to grab something yeah. and mm. drifting over and hitting him. Which brings me to, I'm not even continuing oh with the book. Oh my gosh. <clears throat> I brought Bev Vincent's new book, the uh, Stephen King, A Complete Exploration of His Work, Life, and Influence, uh, which we did a review of. And my excerpt is on the Amazon page for this, so that's cool. I want to read something interesting to you guys. Clapping for you. (laughs) Thank you. In the opening pages of From a Buick 8, State Trooper Curtis Wilcox is struck and killed by a drunk driver who is leaning over to extract a beer from a cooler on the floor next to him. When the book was published three years later, that incident seemed like it had been inspired by King's experience. However, it was a case of life imitating art. Quote, The coincidence of having written a book filled with grisly vehicular mishaps shortly before suffering my own has not been lost on me, but I've tried not to make too much of it. I changed nothing in the course of my story to reflect what happened to me. Most of what I wanted was there in a completed draft. The imagination is a powerful tool. Hmm. How fucking crazy is that? Three years. (laughs) (laughs) He wrote this. This was published in 2002. The accident was in 99, but... He just completed the first draft of From a Buick 8 before the car accident. Wow. I just thought that was, because uh, when I read it, I was like, ooh, King, because like, we've talked about King putting right. the accident in things. And so I was like, oh, is this the first <laughs> appearance of the accident? Technically, kind of. Very spooky. Mm-hmm. Wow. And that's such a scary way to go. Uh, right. For me, such a, I can't even imagine, more brutal way to go out. Like, to the point where, I don't know if this is just my anxiety-riddled brain, but I I think about stuff like this happening a lot, <laughs> just in my day-to-day life. Walking down the street, I'm like, wow, there's a lot of people on the planet, and a lot of them are piloting several thousand-pound mm-hmm. s- speeding death machines, <laughs> and we're just expected to be like, yeah, probably nothing will happen. We're just meat sacks. Yeah, we're so fragile. This is the the description of how brutal this accident was comes up a little later, but I don't know if I'm building it up in my memory because it's also an anxiety of mine. Oh, I swear it said that the impact was so great that it turned him inside out. The the line spinning him skinless into the side of the road, leaving his uniform. Inside out, like okay, a magic it's the trick. skinless and inside out oh, that God. in my brain became. It turned him inside. <laughs> that it's would like a be... Hellraiser car. <laughs> yes, <laughs> that'd be a hell of a car accident. <laughs> I know. Just I blocked those words from my memory, and I'm sad that you put them back in there, Ben. <laughs> so that is spending time with Troop D. He has his mother and his two uh, identical twin sisters, who are both ten. Uh, at home, but he has found the solace in spending time with Troop D. What do you guys feel about how Ned is uh, becomes a part of this? We we establish him becoming a part of this Troop D family. I liked it. I thought you could tell right away how much they cared for him and kind of just 
automatically took him under their wing because he's he's in his senior year of high school Mm -hmm. during this. So he's not like interning or anything. It's just sort of this informal thing. And it that really comes through in the part we're about to get where he starts kind of actively working there in a way. Maybe it's my own uh, issues with another book in which we are supposed to empathize with a bunch of police officers. <laughs> Alan Pangborn's a good cop. <laughs> it's, uh, I'll allow it because it's the 80s and we didn't know better. Um, <laughs> I, I found this to be kind of a bummer. Well, obviously, a kid's <laughs> dad died. But no, I, I like the our, our main character-ish, kind Sandy. Of, yeah who's this cop that's kind of taking father-like role in this, or like kind of trying to. Yeah. He's uh, the sergeant commander of Troop D, so he's the head of mm-hmm. this whole place. Yeah. He talks about how this kid, he he latches on to Troop D when his dad dies because it's like, you know, he, he needs to be close. He He's trying to feel close to his dead dad. But he talks about it in this like, oh, we were so proud of him that he like dropped out of football and like all the things that the other children, the high school age <laughs> children think are important. He he said it was time to put away the games. And I was like, that sucks. Why are you that? That is this kid going through the grief and depression <laughs> of losing a loved one. Mm-hmm. You should be encouraging him to still be a child like this. I don't know. I'm sure, Ben, that they're not going to put him in harm's way. <laughs> oh, never. So this will all turn out good for Ned. <laughs> uh, they, uh, kind of like what you see him said, he not quite interns at this place, but they start teaching him the ropes. And he sits with uh, Shirley Pasternak, who is the dispatcher. And she teaches him how to run calls. And he even they like all stop and watch him run a call at one point. And I thought that was kind of adorable. They're all just Mm -hmm. showing support. They're there for him and cheering for him. I guess, sorry, Ben, I'm still kind of like thinking about what you were pointing out. Mm -hmm. I guess for me, I took it more as him getting into something else that's not like spiraling, like getting into drugs and alcohol and stuff and kind of having that more negative side of things. So it's, yes, he did give up some childlike activities that every kid should have the opportunity to do but i think he traded it for something that shouldn't be as dangerous as the alternative so i don't know josh do you have a feeling about it i i'm wondering if sandy's kind of pride in him is reflective of how when we jump back to the then and we see kurt when he's still a rookie Mm -hmm. and we see that we see what a great rookie Kurt is like what a go-getter he is and things like that. And I'm wondering if Sandy just is proud because he sees so much of his dad in that attitude. Although they do point out that he's, they know he's not going to stay. Like that's not his, Mm -hmm. that's not his career goal. So that's interesting too. In fact, he shows up one day because he got a full ride scholarship to the university of Pittsburgh and they are cheering for him and they're so excited for him. And obviously you know, he wishes he could share that with his dad. He could give a shit. <laughs> <laughs> he shares that news and that everybody celebrates, but then Sandy sees him outside crying. And I feel like that we've talked about it a thousand times, the way King writes grief, the, mm-hmm. the way when he's sitting there with Sandy and just talking about the Ned shares this dream he keeps having with Sandy. He, he keeps having this dream that none of it happened. It's, yeah. mm-hmm. uh, it's almost 
not a dream. It's so real that he will be in bed and get up and know that his dad's downstairs and think of something nice to do for him, like buy that set of golf clubs that he wanted. And just as he's about to go run downstairs to to see him, he'll wake up in the middle of the night, which is such a good mm-hmm. touch yeah. that because that, he, he says, you know, I'll in the dream, I'll wake up and the sun will be shining and I'll smell coffee and I'll know everything's okay. And then waking up in the dead of night. Brutal. It was the, if I had the dream every night, I'd know it was a dream. But the problem is that I only have it every once in a while. And that broke me. Mm-hmm. That was so upsetting. The, the real problem is that Ned is struggling with the the way his dad died. It, uh, you know, this Bradley Roach was a well-known drunk in the area. And he knows like they'd had interactions before him and, and Ned's dad. And he has a hard time. Having a hard time coming to terms with the fact that his dad didn't die because of something heroic or something of his own. It just was a dumb accident. You know what I'm going to say? It was a meaningless death like Tasha Yar. Ugh, Tasha, may she rest in peace. (laughs) (laughs) I do. You mentioned, and we don't know this yet, but we can mention it here because it's very powerful. When you say that they had run-ins, he had arrested him several times. Mm But one time he didn't arrest him. He drove him to an AA meeting and made him go in and stay. And it's it's like that kind of small town. Everybody knows everyone else. So sometimes you just bend the rules because you think that you can do something to really help that person. And that's the same guy he accidentally killed. It's just like, yeah, oh. I, I'm wondering going forward how much of this book is going to be about the relationship between Kurt and Brad. Mm-hmm. Uh, because it's almost built up here like there are there's some force where they, they are fated to meet in this final collision. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I don't know. It, there's there's something more there that like, like maybe the card did something to Roach that night. I definitely had that thought i don't know if it's it's not supported yet in what yeah. we have seen when the car does show up brad's the first person to touch it yeah and i was like uh is this some kind of uh curse some kind of he's been poisoned to fall down this this hole become the alcoholic that kills kurt I don't know if that's supported because he already before he goes to the car he thinks that uh if if he treats the guy that's driving the car well, he might tip him and it'll be enough to get a case. Yeah. Uh, he but says that even in the even in this early stage, he was very eager to drink. So I think it still could have set things in motion though that we don't know about. So I don't yeah. know. I guess we'll see. <laughs> yeah. I got I got so excited to get into this book that I forgot to ask if either of you had read it before because no, I hadn't. I no. Had uh <sighs> how long has it been? <laughs> what was the last book that we that none of us had read? That's a good question. It was one this past year, I believe. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It was fairly recently, mm-hmm. I think. That mm. <laughs> says a lot about my uh, ability to retain memory. <laughs> I, and I'm I'm blowing past so much of this beginning because I really want to get to the stuff that's so very interesting yeah. about this book. Also, the beginning's just oh, boring. The, the, well, begin, it's, 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 it's kind of a boring start. It is. It's, it's <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's building all these relationships because mm-hmm. this is also a fairly good-sized ensemble cast. So we're, we're getting drops of these people's names and, mm-hmm. and jobs that 
as we're getting to the place now, those people are starting to become relevant in the story mm. of the past. Uh, so let's get towards it. They pull some strings and get Ned hired on for the summer so he can make some money to save up for college. And one of these days, Ned is cleaning and he happens to be cleaning Shed B. And he looks in because there was a tarp over this car that's in there and it slid off and he wanted to ask some questions about it. Sure, it's fine. <laughs> And as Ned is asking Sandy about it, the Sandy has this memory of a time that Kurt went in with a rope tied around his waist. And like <laughs> from that mo- moment, I was like, what the fuck is going to happen with this car? Because I I didn't read any synopsis, Mm-mm. any anything about this. So I had no idea going in. Yeah, it's wild. I feel that I'm also going in completely <laughs> blind. Mm-hmm. This has to be if not the one of the least talked about King, like it, I yeah. never see from a Buick eight come up in any Same. like, what's your favorite King n- novels? And this was 2002. Yeah. Yeah. I've seen several people post that this is their like second favorite though. And I find <laughs> that very strange. And this is the, it's so specific. This is like the second car novel. Cause it'd be Christine. And mm-hmm. then this one. Unless you count, like, trucks, mm. Uncle Otto's. Okay, well, quit mentioning or... several. <laughs> None <laughs> of those are novels. <laughs> no, you said novels. Oh, you did those say novels. Sorry. novels. Sorry, no, you're absolutely correct. Thanks, Ben. <laughs> gotcha. <laughs> uh, and so we start getting into uh, the then part of this story, because he, as Ned is asking, Sandy decides, you know what? I guess we should tell if he's going to be here, we should tell him. And he starts thinking about the old commander, Tony Shane Dinks, who uh, is now in a assisted living home with Alzheimer's. So that's a rough go. Man, is that related too? I'm very curious. Oh, I hadn't even made that connection. Also, I'd like to drop this here. As, as we get further into this, I keep looking back at this moment and thinking, are they pretty irresponsible for letting this kid get close enough to this vehicle because like wouldn't they want to protect him against this force a a thousand percent uh the the whole force seems to be taking this way too lightly (laughs) like everyone that knows about it they say you know it's not a secret technically Mm -hmm. but also we don't go around talking about it (laughs) as we start to figure things out that's not enough. <laughs> they, <laughs> think about the windows. Mm-hmm. The windows on the shed, uh, shed B, mm-hmm. right? He talks about how the, all of the windows are completely clean. Um, and it is because over the past 20, however long years, how, how long has it been? It's since yeah. this car years, yeah. yeah. Since this car has shown up, the officer's will go up and and cup their ha- hands against the window and look in and look at this uh, thermometer that is hanging on the wall mm-hmm. beside so the car cool. and see whether the tarp is still on the car or not. Okay, that's all well and good. Why aren't those windows boarded up? <laughs> okay, as we find they- out later, they should really be boarded up. <laughs> also, I, and you shouldn't be randomly looking into this garage <laughs> that could at any second blind you. But I think it's because of the pull that it has. Because mm-hmm. there are several times where Sandy, I think, describes people running towards what's happening like they mm-hmm. have no control over themselves yeah. and even the dog which we'll get to not wanting to go in but trying to get in anyway it's 
I don't know. It's weird. I think I attribute it to that, but it just seems so freaking irresponsible to do to Ned. Yes. This is the moment, though, that I became all in on this book because as he is, Sandy is thinking about Shedby and in the thing inside, it's described literally as the shrouded shape of something that almost looked like a Buick eight cylinder. (laughs) It was usually covered with a tarp, but it slides off for no apparent reason. And, uh, it is sort of a 54 Buick, but it's not from 1954 or a Buick or a car at all. And I was like, (laughs) yeah, game on. I have no idea what's going to happen, but this sounds fucking awesome. That was awesome. And it had me, but then I was lost immediately for like the next section, I guess, (laughs) because I don't want to play into gender roles, but I wish I was a car boy because... (laughs) I'm sure that this is very, this next part coming up is very fascinating for people who know what things should look like (laughs) on cars. For me, I was just like, yep. Yeah, mm, sure. It's a car. Sure. I definitely, when uh, I think it's Kurt, he goes, uh, did you, did you get a look at the portholes? And the other guy goes, well, yeah, of course. The Buick 8s have portholes. And I'm like, what the hell are you talking about? (laughs) What is that? Do you mean windows? We should have. I, I didn't look up what a 1954 <laughs> Buick looks like. Did either of you? I did not. I just looked at the cover of the book. Hey, we, we aren't here to do research, folks. <laughs> no one has ever accused we, us of researching have, on the show. We have never claimed to be experts, y'all. <laughs> uh, he tells him that it's officially locked in there under uh, as a repo under theft of services for $7 of gas, which is very funny. <laughs> Despite it being in the 80s, because it's June. It is a nice, cool 55 in this shed, in this wood shed that should not be holding in coolness. 30 degrees cooler. Yeah. Uh, Ned asks to go in and they say, no fucking way. We have so much to tell you before you even try. And uh, asks if it's his dad's. And I love that Sandy is like, this kid's intuition is spot on. What did you guys think of that of that uh, intuitive jump asking if it's his dad's? It told me a lot about Kurt before we actually get to meet him because it's it was already described as belonging to the troop. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So for Sandy to think, well, technically no, but yeah, yeah. you're right, <laughs> was telling. Yeah, like that. It's uh, it's all of Troop D's car, but it was also Kurt's car, and it was also Enos Rafferty's car Oof. in a way that. It couldn't be anyone else's. Yeah. And that is some good old fashioned uh, delicious foreshadowing. Delicious. <laughs> Has not, we've not had like a real good dose of delicious foreshadowing in a while. And that's pretty great. He offers to tell Ned this whole story and that he can go look in for himself. But when the temperature is back up to about normal, they meet up after work and Archie and Shirley end up joining them for the story. And we get our first visit to then 1979. Either one of you want to walk us through the discovery of the Buick? I'll start because when it gets into more detail about it, I'm not going to be very <laughs> useful. We are with Bradley Roach, mm. the guy who would, you know, 20 some years later accidentally kill Kurt. And he's, oh God, I have this image of him. I can't remember which book it was. Was it Christine? Where, yeah, someone's <laughs> fapping it to their dad's dirty magazines. At <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Yes. <laughs> So in my head, that's him. Yep. <laughs> so this Buick 
drives in to the gas station and he, Josh, like you said, he's like, ooh, wonder if I can get a good tip from this guy. And the guy gets out and he's very pale and he's dressed in a long black trench coat, I believe. Mm-hmm. And like a big head. He's dressed like The Undertaker back yeah, in that's the classic was, yeah, days. That's yeah. what I was picturing, like long black scraggly hair, big hat, can't really see his features. Yeah. And so he's doing the the service that you would do and. 1979. I don't know what that was. <laughs> Putting gas in the Servicing car? Servicing the car. Well, I assume there's other things that they would do as part of that. Like, like check the clean, oil. Yeah, clean like full, oil. Service, yeah. full service gas station. Oh, yeah, okay. Yeah. And then he goes back into his office and he's, you know, some time passes and he realizes that guy didn't come back and it's been a long time. Where could he possibly be? And this is where we find out that the car turns people into garbage cans. (laughs) Before we explain that, I'd just like to point out that uh, the audiobook um, does a thing that when it switches to the past, a different person reads it. There's like five different... Narrators There's like eight for this. different narrators for this. It's wild. Yeah, it's it's very strange and jarring. Fifteen but narrators. <laughs> during this part in particular, the guy that reads this, <laughs> I love his performance for a few reasons. First of all, when the guy gets out of the car, which was something I wasn't expecting. No, I either. was expecting it just roll up and just be empty. empty. Yeah. But this guy gets out of the car and he's in long black trench coat and all that. And he's described as having talking like he has a mouth full of jelly, which is oh, awful. Yeah. Maybe it's not a real mouth. Oh, oh, oh my God. Uh, it might not be a the mouth. The way the, the guy reading the audiobook says this guy's like one line is he's just like, fill her up. Yeah. <laughs> and it's such a funny line reading. He sounds like Lurch from the Adams family. That's exactly the feeling I had. It's great. And also <laughs> when. Brad does this little once over of the car mm-hmm. the way I mean, maybe I read into this mm-hmm. but the way the guy reading describes the car in a certain ways is un comfortably sexual. <laughs> Was that just me? Are you talking the, about the, the specifically steering wheel? The, the specifically he goes and those fat white wheel tire <laughs> white wall tires. <laughs> I was like, oh, that's too much. I didn't get that You just want to slap them, <laughs> them fat tires. Jeez, you guys. <laughs> <laughs> I just, I was trying to help. <laughs> uh, some of the things that Bradley does notice at this point is that the steering wheel is massive, like way bigger than it should be. The card also doesn't have a license plate or an inspection sticker. And that when he filled the tank, this is 1979, so $7 in gas was a lot of gas. Mm -hmm. So he theorizes it had to be damn near empty for it to have needed this much. And uh, and yeah, when he notices the guy hasn't come back, he goes to the bathroom and notices nobody's in the bathroom, walks around back. And behind the gas station, there's a steep embankment that goes down to a river. Fun fact, this is the reason this book exists. The, the king wrote it because he was at a gas uh-huh. station, saw the embankment, and wondered if he fell down, how long it would take anyone to find him or if they would. Huh. <laughs> That's so funny That's, that that became this. Yes. I was like, of all the things in this book for it to be the reason he wrote it, thank you, mm-hmm. Bev Vincent, for that uh, That also, that piece of info. Mm-hmm. Um, 
but yeah, there's he there's no sign of him, but he sees something that could be that man's black trench coat in the river. So he calls the police and well, he calls Troop D. And that's how Curtis and Ennis get brought into this. When Kurt and Ennis arrive, they start going over the Buick and starting. They find more things. Ennis immediately is like, OK, there's no antenna. We talked about the portholes. Mm-hmm. That there's a different number on each side. Mm hmm. Uh, Whatever. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and we find out that no man or clothes were ever found when they went to find whatever it was. It was a garbage bag mm-hmm. and not a trench coat at all. So they all they can think of is, I guess, theft of services to take this and get it out of here. And they tow the car back to the station. And on the ride back, that's when Kurt shares all of the things he discovered, because while uh, Enos was checking the area and taking the statement, Kurt was checking out the car. And they, uh, let's run down some of the things he says. Uh, first, the hood latch is a push instead of a pull, which I don't know why that seems weird to me, but it just, that gave me the creeps. <laughs> Cause, well, cause it, it doesn't, that it, it doesn't happen any, in any car. It is it, one of these, this, this, the way the car is described is so weird. Yeah. Because it took me a minute to be like, am I creeped out? because he is it is described in such a way that all of the characters are deeply unnerved and you feel that but then when they describe the car it's it's just like it's a car it's but it's an impossible car sure and like once they get into the engine you're like okay there's definitely something but at first, it's just like they're looking it over and they're like, the steering wheel's real big. <laughs> they look at the dashboard and it's a dashboard, but, but uh, not quite. But not quite. And it's this like Lovecrafty way mm-hmm. of describing something while still describing something completely mm-hmm. mundane. Yeah. It is as though they were like, I saw, if there was a short story that was just like, I saw the scariest thing I have ever seen, ever. And then went on to describe a house without any embellishment. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> sure, okay, yeah. If they're just, I I saw a That's room. That's like the back rooms. Yeah, it, it's like, it just, the, the idea of having something described to you that you're like, yeah, why are you freaking <laughs> out so bad? Why, why are you why are you so disturbed by this that you're telling me about it? You just told me it's a, it's a car and it's got a steering wheel and uh, can, pedals and stuff. Can can I tell you It's interesting. how my brain translates it? Yeah. It's like a very detailed Hot Wheels blown up to normal car size. <laughs> like you can like get inside that. of That's... it, but everything is just built that's yeah. funny Very because interesting. It, do, it did remind me of something else from a different King book that we have not covered yet oh. and will be covering soon. Ooh. So I, I'm sure w- remind me of this <gasps> well, moment when what, we get to the book? regulators. Ah, okay. Oh, I haven't read that one. Mm-hmm. Me either. Yeah. I think a part of it is that when they're giving that uh, unnerved feeling, it's because that's before they pinpointed what's wrong and i think that's the eerie part when you look at something and you know what it is because your brain says i'm looking at this thing but then every 
piece of evidence about it contradicts that it should be that thing. That's where that unnerving. And I think the when he's like staring at the dash and he's uncomfortable looking at the dash, you don't know why. But as we find out later, uh, they mentioned that the odometer is all zeros. The uh, the knobs don't turn. Uh, and the things ignition like the ignition, there is no key. It's a metal stick that goes in the ignition. And it's all things that at a glance he maybe noticed, but didn't notice on a subconscious level. Yeah. And so that's the eeriness. And then we get when we get those specifics, I think that brings in that ties yeah. it all together. Once once Ben mentioned the house being described just normally, and that made me think of the back rooms. Like now I'm I'm so on board for like the eeriness. I could feel that same because in those videos it's like oh it's just a space it's just an office space or whatever mm-hmm. totally normal but upsetting yes exactly <laughs> yeah, so that's really cool and this is the the big piece of evidence ben you just kind of talked about it that the the battery the battery says buick 8 on both sides and is not connected to anything but itself i i like how it says Buick 8 on both sides like someone was worried they'd forget (laughs) (laughs) that is great and the battery's not plugged into anything yeah like see i would have lifted the hood and been like looks good (laughs) it's the fact that this car could not in any way Mm -hmm. operate under its own power and there's a witness that says someone drove it and they did interrogate him because Mm -hmm. the the book definitely takes the time to tell you that ennis who's kurt's older partner Mm -hmm told him because he was still a rookie at this time to ask Roach questions and he was still learning. So he just went through the whole thing and in their experience interrogating people, they didn't think he was lying about the car Mm -hmm. driving up. Yeah. And at this point uh, they're before they've gotten out of the car, they're still following it to the troop D barracks and uh, they're talking about the uncomfortable feeling. And Kurt says that it's uh, it's earthquake County in there. Mm hmm. And what did you guys think of that? I did look that up. Yeah. Because <laughs> I was like, is that, I mean, I assume Stephen King, like most authors, researches things he writes about. So I was like, how is that, like how much truth or is that just sort of this thing that people think and he's just building off of it? And people apparently cannot sense earthquakes. And one of the articles I found from a .gov website was very critical of the idea. <laughs> it was scathing. It's like, damn, Okay. <laughs> It definitely <laughs> struck me as like, nah, no, this is this is an actively stupid idea. Although I've I've heard that like my whole life that animals, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, respond differently but hours or minutes. The before idea that hits. there's there is a physical like measurable because the, the the what he says is that before an earthquake, it is it has been measured that the temperature drops. That's nothing. That's nothing. And then, and then, what's more, even if that was something, I was like, fine. It didn't bother me enough to look it up. (laughs) But then I was like, okay, what does that have to do? What connection made you connect it to this car? There's no correlation. I think it was the humming too, like that harmonic sound that you can't quite hear. But what does that have to do? Felt like it would turn into talking. He says, "Oh, that's creepy." That that got me a little bit. (laughs) Yeah, I I don't know. It's this idea because he's like, "Well, you know, there's you know how it gets cold before an earthquake. (laughs) Well, it got cold in the car, so." 
Okay, finish Specifically, that thought. <laughs> he says like like an icebox, like a yeah. the drastic temperature change. Sure, so I would I would assume it was haunted before I thought an earthquake. Exactly. Was <laughs> it's like yes. okay, are you saying that the car's gonna have an earthquake? Or are you just saying that all danger makes you cold? Because either way, that's stupid. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> Is it chilly outside? No, we're in danger. We're in danger. <laughs> when they get the car back, first that's when we find out about Tony Shane Dinks and how he runs Troop D. Mr. Dylan, their mascot, who goes ballistic when he sees the car. Yeah. He's like scared shitless and he's gonna barking. be a big Steve Award. <laughs> oh. <laughs> but he's also like pulling towards it. Yeah, they're saying he's in later too, like anytime he interacts with or gets close to Shed B, if the door is open, he will just be going crazy like he's terrified and peeing all over, but pulling on the leash like he is trying to get in, even though it seems like he's terrified yeah. of this thing. Now, we talked about earlier this story jumps between then and now a bunch. Uh, for now, I'm going to skip some of the now because we'll be talking about it when we cover what happened then. Okay. So let's jump to B.B. Roth and his children, because that's the next big reveal about the Buick 8. <laughs> what do you guys think of B.B. and his I children? I hate this. <laughs> it, it was so, I hated the narration of it because it was so obnoxious. Yep. Reading yeah. it, reading it was fine. Once again, maybe it was just a weird state of mind I was in. Weirdly horny. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's well, you, Ben. I think... <laughs> I think oh, Sandy no. was weirdly horny because he kept talking about how attractive, unusually attractive yeah, that one that girl was. Just, was. A, a woman of extraordinary Ex beauty is yeah. how it's narrated. Pointless. <laughs> that, that was obviously just pointless king misogyny <laughs> for no reason. Uh, but no, the way this character comes in and he has these like three little underlings <laughs> that he treats like, like it, I don't know. I don't like it. Late 70s. I, I don't I know. Think. I want to see the spinoff where where BB Roth solves crimes with his forensics team. He Ugh. just, <laughs> it, I, in my head, pictured him as an in my head played by an extremely horny Jeff Goldblum. Okay, it's, <laughs> Perfect. Yeah. Oh my now god, I want that's to see amazing. That <laughs> Absolutely. Wow. I was like, what is this character? Why you, is he like okay, this? Okay, when you cast. Any character is a Jeff Goldblum. You are reading horny. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's like eating nasty. It's reading horny. <laughs> oh, no. Ben's face is so upset. He's so distraught. Oh, no. Ben, do you feel cold? Because you're in danger. <laughs> anyway, well, it's to yeah. say I did not like this, uh, this yeah. scientist, this forensic scientist, in my head, kind of prancing <laughs> around, demanding his underlings to call him BB. Uh, it's it's too much. <laughs> well, uh, they established that in back in this day, places didn't just have e easy access to forensics. So he called in a favor to get this BB Roth and and his children, who are his interns, uh, to come and off the books look at the Buick. And they spend forty five minutes taking samples. Uh, checking, taking all sorts of readings, whatever they had at a, at their uh, available disposal. And BB says that afterwards, he's like, I hope you don't want to make this official because no one would ever listen to me again. Ooh, and that, yeah. and he confirms this car is not a car, 
But Enos's follow-up question is really what got me, which was, if it had blood, what the <laughs> fuck? That uh, that was insane. What a, what a jump. I guess as a cop, maybe you'd always ask that. <laughs> <laughs> For every I, I case. I never be a cop. <laughs> this, this was, Sir, do you know why I pulled you over? Do you have blood? Do you have blood? <laughs> do you have blood? It's vampire cop <laughs> this fall. And we we get the results of this back pretty quickly yes. too that all the samples he took everything is what it is mm-hmm. except it's not any manufactured product that any of them are aware of. Like you can't trace it back to the production company. It, there's no it's like an imitation of something but a perfect imitation. Yeah, and he noted like the dashboard, the wood in the dashboard is wood, but he says they didn't have wood dashboards in 54 mm-hmm. Buicks. Also, after he runs it through, like, analysis or whatever, he says it's oak. Probably. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the probably yeah. is upsetting. Oh, did you guys like how the big, fat tires wouldn't <laughs> hold any pebbles? Mm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. They try to shove those pebbles in between them treads. Just fall right Just out. gently, just... Why? Why? <laughs> you the, did it. Just with... <laughs> <laughs> the amount of times Ben accidentally starts something that we end up torturing him <laughs> with <Ben hates>. is <laughs> innumerable. Oh. <laughs> this is also where we find out that all of these samples do not last very long, right? Yeah. Don't they just sort they of degrade dis- yeah. entirely? All that was left of them was the chemicals that they had sprayed on them. And uh, we find out later, I'll just say it right now, that the, the places where they took samples from, the they grew back. They, yes. they chipped pieces away and those pieces grew back. And it was, I think Kurt scratched the car once intentionally. Yep. And they watched as over time, it's like it was just filling that spot mm-hmm. back in. Or I, when they, he, Kurt stabs at the tire with a screwdriver and it literally, they hear the, the air and then the air turns to a whistle and then the tire forces the screwdriver out and patches itself. That's okay. This is the best car. <laughs> Never any car troubles. Oh, as someone that blew out a tire on the highway a few days ago, I agree. <laughs> that sucks. Yeah. Four, nor- four new tires are expensive. One thing that is interesting is that this Please car- Please support our Patreon. <laughs> <laughs> it's almost Christmas. Ben needs new tires for Christmas. Um, the car has a glass exhaust system. Now, we're not carboys, but I would like a carboy to tell me what a glass exhaust system would do. Uh, like, what, what, like, I'm very it, curious. If I had what, to guess, break. break? <laughs> I, yeah, I couldn't gauge how upset they were by that. Sure, yeah. <laughs> and that's when, after all these results, they make Shedby the home of the Buick. Tony Shane Dinks takes charge and... They he makes a deal to clear out Shedby and they pull it through and leave it in there. I want to get your guys' thoughts on this because I really liked the theory behind this because they ask him about locking it away in the shed and he says he won't have a Cardiff Giant on their hands. I'd love I love that. I, kn- <laughs> I, kn- I didn't know anything about the Cardiff Giant. Yeah. Had either of you heard about it before? Yeah. I think oh. so, just from existing. Ben, in the would world. you like to recap? Yeah, uh, the Cardiff Giant was this guy in, what, upstate New York somewhere who said, hey, I was excavating on some land I own, and I found a skeleton of a a giant humanoid that is is much larger 
than any known human, and it became this huge sideshow. So much so that it got attention from like P.T. Barnum. The they mention it in the book that the phrase "There's a sucker born every minute." Is, was coined as a reference to the Cardiff Giant. That's amazing. Because the guy who created it eventually came out and was like, hey, just kidding. Um, <laughs> I had it carved. Like, yeah, I commissioned I, it, this piece. <laughs> got made in Chicago. It's it's not real. And people refused to believe him because by that point, the story had got uh, grown legs of its own. And well, the people that yeah, believe these kind of theories. things are yeah. insane. <laughs> so what are you going to do? Uh, it's it's the Slender Man, uh, where it has a very easily traceable mm-hmm. origin, but crazy people don't care about that. And because of this Cardiff giant, apparently, uh, according to this book, people, there was like a fire that people are disrespectful of the land around it. Um, they destroyed the other town, farmlands yeah, the town to try to find another one. Yeah, it, it caused actual damage to the town that it happened in. And so... Uh, Tony is says no Cardiff giant in Western Pennsylvania, and I thought that was actually really cool. Yeah. It shows like they they may be cops, but they are they may be cops, and they may also be doing this for selfish reasons, as we kind of yeah. get hints at. Mm-hmm. But th- the reasoning of we, we're we want to keep this on the down low for the sake of the like the Amish community it's, in the area. It's a convenient excuse. Yeah. Yes. I also attributed a lot of their refusal to believe that they should turn it over to the scientific community. And, and they do cite what was going on in the community at that time, which was that scientists weren't considered trustworthy. But I I kind of attributed all of that as well to this power that it has over them kind of like it made me think of pet cemetery yeah the burial grounds mm-hmm. you continue to show because it's just that force that's kind of making you do these things so i think in my head i excused a lot of that really selfish <laughs> behavior that arrogance that they mm-hmm. have about it yeah. to that because one guy is like hey guys uh hey i think we should maybe hand this over and they're all like you fucker <laughs> it's like, geez he's probably right yeah. but okay it's interesting people get more defensive when they know they're wrong but <laughs> <laughs> so at 7 p.m sandy comes back to take one more look at the car and he's inside talking to people and uh edith haynes who is enos's uh sister who they call the dragon mm-hmm. calls and is looking for him and nobody had seen enos past like 3 p.m and his car is still there, and no one has any idea where he is. Guys, where do you think? Where's Enos? They search everywhere, and they cannot find him. And I assume he's on some alien planet. <laughs> That's Is that too wild? Uh, well, no, I don't now? think so. This is so weird. This is, uh, like I said earlier, about like the way they describe the car. And it being weirdly mundane, even mm-hmm. like the strange parts of the car. Even the weirdness of the car is still explained as fairly mundane. Like, you see it and you register it. It it isn't like, oh, you know, something outwardly Mm -hmm. scary. It's, I I find a lot of the, the scary parts of this book are completely based on the way the people react react to it. it. 
Because we are all we're getting is it's a weird car. Mm-hmm. But the fact that these this group of policemen <laughs> who ostensibly are supposed to have increased powers of deduction and insight are instantly like fuck the car <laughs> the car ate him yeah. like, instantly you, well and and to what kind of what you're saying ben the the fact that when they are searching for him uh sandy comments that it was scary how quickly the calling for anus turned from yeah. uh annoying to horrifying Mm -hmm. like it became so serious so fast uh they even get mr dylan to try to sniff him out and the scent leads to shed b but they open the door he freaks out again they pull him away and they when they do check it out they notice the trunk is unlocked they're sure that body's gonna be in there lift the trunk nothing so sure that is when they lift the trunk at first they see the body like seasoned Police officers mm-hmm. who are used to seeing terrible yeah. things. Yeah. Their instinct says this body's right here. Yeah. And then the fact that the King after that gives us this line, uh, not all of the horrors went unglimpsed in the end. They glimpsed plenty. <laughs> Fuck. What are we in for in this book? <laughs> this is where I started to get excited. <laughs> I feel really bad for this guy's sister. Are we going to talk about Enos? Sure. What are your takes on, on Enos? Oof, well, she's described <laughs> as she's his sister, but one of, I can't remember, was it Arky? Somebody references her as honey. his wife, yeah. as his wife. And that right there Everything. describes it all. Yeah, she's, because they say she calls all the time and she's nagging and, and it's, it's really sweet though, in a weird way, how after he goes missing and they can't find him and they know that the car had something to do with it. And obviously they can't tell anybody that. And he had talked about, you know, running off to Mexico. And so people started to have rumors that Mm. that's what happened to him. But Tony pulls them all together and he's like, here's how we're going to handle it. Here's how we're going to handle her. We're going to set up a fund for her because she's not going to get that pension for a while. Mm. We're going to take care of her because no one else will, even though she's just like this person that they describe as he probably never married because he was worried all women were like her. <laughs> yes. Which was a pretty good line. Mm-hmm. And they set up this fund for her and she she does go to the papers and stuff and says that she thinks they're keeping things from her. It's a suspicious disappearance, which obviously it is. She gave me real um Wilma Jerzyk. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And it I liked though it was interesting that Sandy describes that the troop never said a disparaging thing about her. They just followed their instructions. But the papers also interviewed neighbors and they were like, oh, she's nuts. <laughs> and so the, you know, reading between the lines, people got a clear picture of why he might disappear, right. which I think took the heat off of his actual disappearance. Well, we jump back to the now and Huddy who is the person who said the car fucking ate him, uh, has joined the circle because he heard them talk about Mr. Dillon. We find out Mr. Dillon was poisoned. What? 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 I I can't. I'm. That's got to be we mentioned here somewhere. I this. swear to God, we better know what happened to Mr. Dillon. I don't want to see him die, though. Never mind. No. We better not ever find out. <laughs> this is a weird side point, but surely bringing in sandwiches and drinks at this point gave me real Colorado kid vibes. The, the whole thing yes. is very Colorado kid. We haven't yeah. talked about her, but she's great. And while they're uh, having this conversation, what CM just mentioned about how they took care of that that situation, Arky comes in and mentions that the radio static is uh, 
picking up and the TV signal's gone. And in his head, Sandy's like, well, if the microwave isn't fucked by now, it will be soon. So much ominous stuff. I love it. Absolutely love it. Is this where we get the bit about they they can't go off of what they know but what they don't know or they can't trust what they think they know yeah. it's very convoluted it's but so it's, insane yeah it's just more proof that they just don't know anything well because they won't hand it over to scientists <laughs> who could study it but we find out that no oh. one ever found out what happened to enos yeah ever was, so far yeah so far just real quick uh that did bother me that like just as a quick aside we've we're getting so much of Kurt, and he's, like, real... Aggressive? Uh, he's yeah. He's just, like, an excitable guy, yeah. and, oh, he just cares about the job and whatever. And then they're like, oh, yeah, and he hates science. <laughs> and I was like, oh. Uh, uh, I mean, yeah. It's, it, you read, read between the lines. He's an anti-vaxxer. <laughs> absolutely. No, absolutely. I was like, move this guy to today, and I don't think I like him very much. He's, I mean, he's also 22 and he's a, a cop, hot, so he knows yeah. everything. He's described yeah. as being like a good rookie, yeah. almost trooper, mm-hmm. but he strikes me as very hot-headed. And I said aggressive a minute ago because a lot of his behavior, and again, I don't know how much of that is the influence of this car, but a lot of it is aggressive to me. And his obsession with the car is so great that it. I'm kind of surprised that his family never noticed anything weird. And I guess that speaks to how closely under wraps and how tightly knit this troop is that if you if something like that was so important to you and no one outside of that group of people ever caught on to it it's interesting i think i like the with kurt the fact that he is 22 i mean if i found something impossible at 22 i'd also oh, we were all fucking we dicks were, at 22 yeah, we're, we're, all, we're, all <laughs> idiots. we're all the worst but i like that his hot-headedness like All of that tracks why he is so obsessed with it. But I also like that Tony is on the other side of that where he has been uh, the commanding sergeant for a long time. He has tons of experience. Uh, He's, you know, knows all the protocols. And he also like they share both on very opposite sides Mm -hmm. of how they police. And they both share this. Yeah. Like Tony's it it can get you anywhere, basically. And this is the point where Ned leaps to his feet while Sandy's talking because a bright blue white light just flashed from inside Shed B. Okay, revival vibes. Yes. And Tommy Knockers. Oh my god. Like well, it wasn't green. <laughs> no, but just the <laughs> the energy of something kind of well that reminded me a little bit of Tommy Knockers, but mostly just the way this purple light is described gave me heavy I was thinking, did Reverend Jacobs build this car? <laughs> <laughs> is this Buick full of secret lightning? Is it going to where the ants are? <laughs> oh no. Is that where Enos is? Oh, well, that's where we're all going. So, yes. That's a very good point. (laughs) Uh, Who wants to explain the light quakes? The light quakes are these, this interference that happens and every time it happens, you start to get static on the radio, the microwave won't work, the TV goes to static and the temperature in the shed drops. I believe it's below 50. That is like danger zone. Do not go in. Yeah. And so they're when they go out in the present, Sandy explains that it's not as bright as it was initially, which is interesting. It's Very like it's running out of energy. And it made me wonder, is this thing like starving to death or something? Because we get it later. But back in the day, it was like blinding. If you looked right at it, it could mm. blind you. But right now it's 
you can kind of still see, but it's like these this purple energy that just like shoots off of this car. I I don't know how else to. <laughs> that, I mean, that's that's it. Like lightning, I guess. Kind of, it's it like just fla- these flashes of light that come from inside, and it's so powerful that you can't necessarily look right at it. Mm-hmm. But now. You probably can a little bit. And it lasts for a long time. I think one of the episodes was like an hour. Yeah. Just, again, why is this not boring? (laughs) (laughs) I'd also thought that this was, uh, you know, King's nuclear energy thing, that this is kind of a half-life situation Hmm. where it's just this thing has been giving off all this energy and now over Mm -hmm. a course of time the energy diminishes. And then it becomes starving to death dormant. is creepy. Yeah, starving yeah. to death is way more creepy. <laughs> but yeah, that's a good. But because they theory. bring up the radiation stuff yeah. later. Yeah. Uh, at this point, they also ask Ned because as they talked about, we talked about the experiments of scratching and stabbing the tires. Uh, Kurt would take notes in these spiral notebooks and they're like, oh, hey, yeah. Did your dad happen to have any journals or anything at the house? And he's like, yeah, <laughs> fucking tons. Problem, though. <laughs> Is Will said burn all my personal papers? Why wouldn't his Will say give them to my troop? <laughs> because yeah. it, because they could fall in someone else's hands. He can't. They could have gone yeah. to someone else before it made it to the troop, and then all this would be uh, out. It's just yeah, a weird failsafe. They yeah. they but, set up so much of like th- they are spending this time setting up that there's no information. They yeah. they are yeah. actively being like everything that the the reader might be like. Okay, well, what about this? They're like, oh yeah, there were notes. They're gone. They don't don't think about them anymore because they're gone. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh well, what about other people that might know something? Nope, they're dead, dead or have Alzheimer's. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, they are actively making sure yeah. that there we know nothing mm-hmm. about this. <sighs> Man, <laughs> it's th- this is a textbook of how to make a mystery unsolvable. <laughs> yes, very Colorado kid. Yes. <laughs> And it's at this point that Arky speaks up and he basically says, all right, you've told Ned all of the shit that doesn't matter. Now you have to tell him the stuff that does. (laughs) And I was like, what in the world? You it's every member of Troop D, you feel the history of Mm -hmm. all this because it's been over 20 years. And I think that's so cool that even though Sandy is telling the story to Ned for the first time, everybody in this room knows everything Mm -hmm. and we find out later that the reason is because uh tony was basically like we will communicate absolutely everything we will over communicate everything about this uh buick and i thought that was very cool and they had a code for it yeah the radio which (laughs) other nearby places picked up on and they're always amused when they would use it it's like it is what was it it's d D five five by yep yeah do you know uh what five by five means I just, it's, everything's the same, right? It's a, um, it's military, it's, uh, for radio signals, one through five of, oh my god, volume and clarity. Hmm. Those are the ratings. So if you say, if your signal's five by five, it's the best possible signal you can have. Okay. Interesting. Yeah, what a weird juxtaposition. I learned that from Buffy. Because. (laughs) That's really funny. I just, I know you were a military kid. I just assumed. (laughs) No, that was, was why no. you knew that. No, uh, Eliza Dushku's character <laughs> who comes in on Buffy, uh, whenever anybody asks her how she's doing, she says five by five. And I thought that was so fucking cool. <laughs> All right. So let's let's go over the story of the first light quake, 
because this is the first big thing that any of Troop D has seen come out of this experience. Okay, can I kick it off up yeah. to my favorite part, which isn't very far into it, and then you guys can take over. I cannot wait. <laughs> so this was the very first time that the static and everything happened, mm-hmm. so they didn't know what was going on. And Sandy happened to be kind of facing the direction of the shed, but not looking directly at it when the first light quake happened. And that was when we get the information that if I had been looking at it, I'd probably be blind, maybe only temporarily. But like at the very least, (laughs) that would have happened. And so he reacts immediately and is telling everybody you know, there's there's a problem. This is happening. And everyone, he says there's no like sound and he expects there to be some sort of sound or the earth to be responding or some sort of damage, some physical sign of what is going on because this light is so powerful and there's nothing. And he says that they're all like screaming at each other, like yelling. Their voices are raised, even though they can hear everything perfectly yeah. and they don't have to yell at each other. And one of them, so he he has to get his sunglasses and he's putting them on and he's still squinting. <laughs> and one guy this is, my favorite is part. <laughs> trying to put on his sunglasses and it describes how he, they can't see, like it's so bright. And then when it stops, you know, for a second between flashes, they're just, they can't see anything. So one one earpiece goes in his mouth and the other his eyebrow. And I'm just imagining these guys running, stabbing themselves in the faces with their glasses. Okay, that's not the part I thought you were going to bring up. I thought you were going to bring up the guy who runs outside, pulls his gun, looks at it, looks at it and goes, what the fuck am I going to do with this? And puts it away. Yeah, I like that that was my favorite. Yeah. <laughs> oh my God. I, I love just the the bug zapper metaphor of it mm-hmm. that yeah. it's just this bright light and all of them are just cannot help to well, run towards yeah, it. And is it, is it Tony who's like pushing them back? Yeah. Like, you idiots. Stop mm-hmm. it. He like has to pull two away from the shed. Cause they're mm-hmm. about to run in. Tony tells Sandy to go call Curtis and get him out here. Uh, he does. And he's surprised that the landline still works. I thought that was interesting. <laughs> um, that it doesn't, I don't know how signals work. <laughs> But I just thought it was interesting that the landline, no, there's no problem. Because it's wires. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. Um, And in a few minutes, Curtis is out mowing his lawn when this call happens. He shows up and he's like in his shirt and shorts and holding a welding mask. (laughs) Very Very smart. smart. Yeah. There's, I, I also like that. So he runs up to Tony. So we're getting this from Sandy's perspective. Mm -hmm. He can see that Kurt has brought his welding mask and him and Tony are kind of fighting over it almost. Mm -hmm. And because somebody else brought out a uh, Tony has a Polaroid because they all have Polaroids in their car for for accidents. And we don't hear any of this back and forth. We just see that this conversation is happening. What did you guys think was happening in that? I wasn't sure if Tony was trying to take those things so he could do it or if he was just trying to slow Kurt down and caution him because he Kurt several times it's been commented about how like he's he's young so he has no patience because the young Mm -hmm. have no patience so he just rushes into things so I I wasn't sure which which it was yeah until it becomes uh clear Tony sprints off and Sandy says, you know, he, he's glad that it turned out all right because he could tell that Kurt was like on the verge of 
maybe hitting the sergeant oh, yeah, acting rash in a way yeah. he's, it's like he didn't even know who was trying to slow him down mm-hmm. yeah but it becomes clear afterwards that he's he he says that he's glad the sergeant lets him go because i he doesn't think he could have stopped him yeah it, I, it becomes pretty clear that i think the sergeant was telling him no you this could be a huge hugely dangerous situation mm-hmm. you stay back and he just couldn't convince him and so he let him go because what else is he gonna do i'm wondering if it was giving up or if kurt appealed because we've already established both of these people have a very strong fascination i kind of i wonder if kurt could have said something that changed his mind and got Tony a little more, like got him on board as opposed mm-hmm. to Tony fully giving up. And yeah. That's what I'm curious about. That could be. So like I said, uh, Kurt eventually gets uh, the camera and opens the door. And when the door opens, Mr. Dylan loses his fucking mind. And he's not even like right there. Cause I think yeah. Sandy or someone else had pulled him back. Yeah. They've pulled mm-hmm. him back a ways, but he, and he's, been terrified of the sounds he's not terrified of the light at all Mm-mm. well it's when the door is open yeah so i yeah that's so weird and when he when they close the door and in any occasion which we get a description of this dog reacting he sort of comes to like hey guys what's up like you know <laughs> he wasn't just in danger it's weird yeah uh this is when they come up with the name the code name code d and he's mm-hmm. like well we do not talk about this over any airwaves if we do we use that code and the light finally fades and this whole thing lasted just just shy of an hour. Mm-hmm. But it was an extremely chaotic hour. After this incident, that's when Tony calls a meeting upstairs. And Sandy reflects that he l- thought that was the better choice over the downstairs. What did you guys think about that that decision, I guess? That mm-hmm. it was the I'm just curious, because Tony's thing is that it's because it's a family issue so he's changing the scenery to kind of establish a a difference between business as usual versus this is something different yeah is that what you were thinking he was going for yeah that makes sense and i wasn't sure if that was i don't remember something i read in it made it sound like that's what sandy was saying but at the same time i was i I thought i might have been missing something no i could see okay uh what are your guys thoughts on the polaroids after they passed the polaroids (laughs) around the room that uh kurt took while he was inside the shed First, it's really clever because he uh, points out that he's like, we don't have to worry about radiation. I'll go pick up a Geiger counter tomorrow if you want me to. But because these Polaroids worked, because of the way Polaroids work, they would be burnt up. They they wouldn't have developed had there been deadly radiation. I do like the guy who's like, yeah, but I'm not going to trust my nuts to the Polaroids. Yeah. but then once he they they check and they see that in one of them the trunk is Ooh, open. Oh, that's so upsetting. That's so up because Kurt, it, it's not he didn't open it. It's open in mm-hmm. one and closed in the next. So it opened and closed by itself. And mm-hmm. he swears that he he didn't get it on picture, but he swears that the the windshield wipers were going at some point while he was in there. And just it doesn't make sense why the car would be doing these things. Right. Or like, they're, how. Like, they're like, yeah, the windshield wipers, well, it, you know, electrical storm kind of stuff or whatever. And like, yeah, but the trunk's not electric. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> this is the, uh, is D still five by becoming the 
the standard call and response for finding out what's happening. And the next day they get the Geiger counter. They get a thermometer that they hang up in there. (laughs) And on this next day, the thermometer in the shed reads 47, which is 40 degrees cooler than outside. (laughs) Oh, also, I we forgot to point out that when those initial light quakes, not only I mean, yes, we've talked about how bright they are, but the fact that at one point they mention you can see every hole in yeah. between, like any opening that light can escape. Shed. Yeah, I thought that was, was so fucking. It cool. painted such a cool picture in my mind. It was like the most vivid image that I've gotten from this book. Yeah. So on this day that it's forty-seven degrees, at forty degrees cooler than outside. This was also the day the Roadmaster gave birth for the first time. (laughs) This is while this happens right at the end of our reading. Yeah. Yeah. So upsetting. What a great cliffhanger. (laughs) (laughs) Up until that line, I was meh. I I, I could take or leave this. I was like just not getting super into it. Because, like, the weird Lovecraftian car thing, I think King himself does a better job at in his uh, short story, Mile... What is it? It's the first short story in Bizarre of Bad Dreams. Mile 81? Mile 81, something. It's mile and then a number. Mm -hmm. Very similar about a car parked at a a car stop that when you look at it, it just looks like an extremely muddy car. But it's not. Um, And it is a very, very scary short story. And I I couldn't help but uh, think of that the entire time where I'm like, well, this is that. But that does the whole story in this amount of time that we've just covered in this first episode. Have you read that one? No. I have not read it either. When we get to the end of this book, I would be very curious to discuss that short story versus this book. Hell yeah, let's do it. Yeah. Also, before we wrap this up, can I ask you guys, do you think that the man who initially drove it into the gas station was not a man? Or, Almost or, certainly. Or the person who had previously been captured Ooh. by this vehicle or whatever it is? That's a very interesting question. Because you, you could argue that the, the mouth thing, which is why I said maybe it's not a real mouth, it, he was like a... You know, the best their best replica of a human person, but he wasn't quite right. Like the car isn't quite right, or maybe it changed him. I don't know. Yeah, uh, all I'm, questions. I am excited <laughs> to learn the answer to. My theory is alien psychic illusion. I'm. I, I imagine that car did not okay. drive up, and a man did not get out. That car appeared, and whatever fucking alien ex machina gave the impression of these things. And that's why the guy's voice sounded so weird is because it was trying to imitate human speech for the very first time. <laughs> uh, right. Or maybe we're going to learn that that was just uh, the car giving birth the first time. <gasps> oh, fuck. I guess we'll find out next reading. Yeah, if a guy walks out of the shed <laughs> and it's like, my mouth isn't formed yet. <laughs> I love that impression. And that is it for this episode of Dairy Public Radio. As always, thank you for listening. Join us next time where we will be covering Through Now, Sandy, which is about page 211 if you have the physical copy. For Joshua Khan and Benjamin Graham, I'm CM Alexander reminding you, sometimes when things go wrong, we get more help than we ever expected. And sometimes it's still not enough. 
Hey everyone, CM Alexander here. Thank you for listening to From a Buick 8. We hope you enjoyed it. Let us know your thoughts on our Facebook or Instagram at Dairy Public Radio or Twitter at Dairy Public. You can also send us an email at dairypublicradio at gmail.com because we love to hear from you. Don't forget to check out our Patreon page for bonus content and our Etsy store for fun merch. That's all for now, listeners. Goodbye.